Welcome to the Establish the Edge podcast. I'm your host, Mike Leone, here with a solo podcast today. Going to be doing a few of these, I think, over the next couple of weeks where uh, I call them best ball musings, where I just give a few kind of thoughts on the best ball market and things as they pop into my head. Hopefully, they're useful for you all. In today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about exposure, diversification, a little bit about ranking Nick Chubb, and also, you know, how ease of argument does not equal strength of argument, and then a little bit on stacking and try not to overthink stacking too much. So let's get into it and, and start with the exposure diversification. And I know a lot of people are drafting best ball teams, particularly in best ball mania and these big tournaments and these lower stakes tournaments, they're drafting tons of teams, right? They have a portfolio of teams and a part of that is managing your exposures. You know, do you want to have really hard stances on some players, complete fades on other players? And for me in general, I'm pretty balanced, but the way I'm drafting is I'm kind of baking the ADP into the way I'm drafting. As a result, that gives me some natural diversification off the bat and it prevents me from being like crazy high on some players and having tons of fades. I'm more likely to have full fades on players than I am to have huge stances on players, but there's still players that I'm going to get like 30% of the time. So that's about four times what you would expect based just on pure randomness. So I am still going to go heavy on some players. One thing I try not to be afraid of early is to be really heavy on someone I'm, I'm really different from the market on. And sometimes there's a tendency, I know I've seen this, I was looking at Nico Collins' ADP today in a draft and I was like, wow, you know, we're behind market on Nico Collins after being insanely ahead of market on Nico Collins for like two months when best ball drafts were first released. And there were times during that two months where I'm like, I'm not going to draft Nico Collins here because we're so ahead of market. I know I'll get him at a, at a later point in time. And as a result, I don't have as much Nico Collins as I want. And, you know, similar thing happened with Donovan Peoples Jones and some other players. And it strikes me that early on in the draft season, you really shouldn't be overly managing your exposures, overly diversifying just for the sake of diversifying. If you're taking into account ADP and you still think a player is the best player, continually attack that player. You can run up, you know, a huge exposure. Um, one player I did this with, was Jerome Ford on DraftKings. Had him in basically every draft with the 20 round drafts could definitely take that stab at running back late. And then now he's going in round 14. And I'm really glad, you know, that unlike with Nico Collins, I was willing to load up on Jerome Ford because now I'm probably not getting very much of him. So the point is if you're playing too scared early, you might end up with less of a player than you want if their ADP shifts in the direction that you have the player ranked or in the way that you view the player. Now, sometimes the ADP isn't going to shift that way. I know we're pretty high on Hunter Renfro as a late round pick and some other players, uh, Jaden Reed on DraftKings. And if the market doesn't move that way, as you get really late into draft season, then you can start to diversify. As you see what your exposure is across all your drafts, the ADP hasn't budged in the, you know, the direction you thought it was. Now you can start managing a little bit. So it's not that I would go super extreme, like drafting players that you like in every single one of your drafts. I just, there's only a handful of players that you're going to be really ahead of the market on. And I wouldn't think too much like, oh, I'm so far ahead of market. I'll get enough of this player over time. So uh, I'm, I'm going to pass here. I think you can end up in some situations where you're kicking yourself after the fact that the ADP does follow that way. 
And in general, one way I get my diversification early on before I'm really like looking at who I have and managing exposures, you know, based on where I have players is by being willing to take value early. I think taking value early, regardless of what position it is, is going to get you in some different build types and you're going to need to be prioritizing different types of players at different positions at different points in the drafts based on that. So even if you have the same set of rankings, you can end up with completely different builds and you might not need, you know, Nico Collins as a round 13 wide receiver. And that's how you get exposure. It's not that you ignore Nico Collins as the best value on your board when you need a receiver. You just might not need a receiver at that point in time. That also helps you get like different stack types too. So I really think if you're willing to take that value early and get creative with your roster construction, you can get some natural diversification that way. Now, there still are times where I will check my exposure settings even pretty early on in the draft atmosphere. One example of that is I had a Lamar Jackson team and I had a pick to stack him with either Zay Flowers or Rashad Bateman. And we had them ranked really similarly with Bateman a little bit ahead, but not a ton. I go into you know the underdog app or if you're using third-party tools that manage your exposure settings and just checked and it was like, wow, I have you know, 12% Bateman. I don't have any Zay Flowers yet. So I'm definitely going to take Zay Flowers here. It's basically a 50-50 decision. There's no reason for me to be lopsided one way or the other. I think that makes more sense. That's more drafting logically as opposed to the other situation I laid out to start with Nico Collins, Jerome Ford, Donovan's People Jones, those type of players, you know, is that's more drafting scared that you're wrong and you might be oversaturated as a result, because you will have enough time to figure that out over the course of the draft season. Other thing I want to talk about our ranking on Nick Chubb. So I was going back and forth with Adam Levitan on this a little bit with our Nick Chubb ranking on DraftKings. And that's a difficult one where he's another guy early in the draft season. He was going to round three. We were all over Nick Chubb. You know, taking a ton of him, even two, three turn. And he just keeps moving up and up and up draft boards. And now he's at the point where we're actually behind market on him, even though we like the player. And that's when you have to figure out what to do. And I think it's important to be price conscious to not just chase a player up the board routinely. He's now going as RB4 on DraftKings. And our positional rank is RB7. So we're about five spots behind ADP, which is pretty significant at that juncture in the draft. So the question is like, do we need to move him up? You know, or do we have something wrong here? And for me, I don't think that we do need to make too much of an adjustment on Chubb. I think at this point, the market's too bullish on him and we just let him go. But the players in particular, we were talking about in regards to Nick Chubb is like, well, you know, in a vacuum, do you prefer him over Josh Jacobs? Do you prefer him over um, Bijan Robinson? And with our ADP influence ranks, we have Chubb ahead of Jacobs. But if you just took our pure ranks with no ADP influence, we'd have them pretty tight. And for me, I can make a pretty clear argument for why Josh Jacobs is a better pick than Nick Chubb, I think. And intuitively, I think the feel is, well, Nick Chubb has the higher ceiling. I think if you look at the math, Chubb has the higher floor because there's less systemic risk in the offense. Overall, Raiders could be a train wreck. And I'm ignoring here intentionally a little bit of the holdout risk for Josh Jacobs. That's to me a little bit of a separate conversation. 
but Jacobs has the higher median and ceiling outcome because the pass catching is such a huge difference. You know, we're looking at it and, you know, he's seeding like Chubb's seeding like 40 points off the bat on pass catching to Josh Jacobs. That's a lot to overcome. And it's been two seasons in a row where Josh Jacobs been around, you know, that 50 catch marker or so. And maybe Nick Chubb catches more passes this year, but it's unlikely that he gets up to, you know, really even close to a Josh Jacobs level. And also with Josh Jacobs, you've got this clear workhorse role that he's going to get. Again, if he doesn't hold out, he's there week one. The Raiders have no reason to scale back his workload. Uh, Josh Jacobs has every incentive to crush and try and get a next contract. And they just don't have much behind him. Whereas for the Browns, the argument I think is like, oh, well, Kareem Hunt's gone now. We're going to see an absurd amount of Nick Chubb. Nick Chubb had 300 carries last year. You know, I think the workload was higher than people realized. I think there's a little bit less growth potential than people realize in that role. I actually expect, you know, players, whether it's Felton, who's a pass catching back for the Browns, if he makes the team, or if it's Jerome Ford, who people are drafting in like round 13, 14 now, I think those players are going to have more of a base role than like Zamir White and some of the other players for the Raiders um, also just think there's more running back targets available in the Raiders offense than in the Browns offense. And the final thing too, I think the Watson uncertainty is people are viewing it only one way. Like early in the off season, there was more like people were looking at how bad the Browns were at the tail half of the season when Watson returned and they were weighing that risk with the potential upside. And we were actually like really in on some of the pass catchers for Cleveland on Watson in particular Chubb, as we mentioned, but now people have gone from maybe not weighing the upside potential enough to almost ignoring the risk where what if Watson is still bad? What if this offense isn't that good? Um, you're really going to be in trouble taking a non-pass catching back as RB4 on a full PPR site if that's the case. So the point here, though, is that I can make that argument relative to Josh Jacobs really well because there's more of a contrast between the players. Whereas if you're arguing Nick Chubb versus Bijan Robinson, I'm actually more confident that Bijan Robinson is a better pick than Nick Chubb than I am that Josh Jacobs is a better pick than Nick Chubb, even though it's a little harder for me to make that argument because there's some similar types of uncertainty between the two players. You know, we're both depending on efficiency for these players. Um, they both might not have full workhorse workloads. They both have question marks as far as how much they're going to deliver in the past game, you know, and as that's why this stuff's nuanced. And again, the ease of the argument does not equal the strength of the argument. I've made that point before, but you know, just in this conversation with Adam, it, it kind of struck out to me that I, I have to check my own bias. I don't want to inflate Josh Jacobs relative to Nick Chubb too much, just because the argument's simpler to outline. And I, by the same token, I don't want to, undervalue Bijan Robinson relative to Nick Chubb because that argument's a little bit tougher to, to make. Final thing I want to talk about is stacking and not to overthink stacking. And I don't want to uh, pick on my friend Davis Maddock too much here. Um, I will have him on to do a bold predictions for the season podcast at some point in August. We did that last year. I think it turned out really well, but he had a tweet about panicking basically over one of his teams in, in underdog best ball mania four on whether it actually had any chance to win because he had Kirk Cousins stacked with Jordan Addison, but did not have Justin Jefferson on the team. And 
I see this from people a lot where I think they're overthinking what it takes to win in week 17. A lot of the data I showed in best ball manifesto is stacking your quarterback is important. Having an opponent bring back in week 17 is going to increase your odds of winning a finals and that increases your expected value. All of that is true. And that doesn't mean that here we are in July that we know cookie cutter exactly what will preclude you from winning week 17 or not. And the Justin Jefferson example, I responded, literally all it takes is Jordan Addison to catch a touchdown that week. And then Jamar Chase or another round one wide receiver to score roughly in line with Justin Jefferson. That's a really reasonable outcome. You still have correlated your team. You've still increased your odds of hitting a ceiling with two players with Kirk Cousins and Jordan Addison. You've still reduce the amount of things that you have to get right because you just have to get the Vikings offense right. You have not precluded yourself from winning this tournament because you don't have the exact stack. I see that with Travis Kelsey and Patrick Mahomes a lot. If you have Patrick Mahomes with Sky Moore and Marcus Valdez-Scantling, you absolutely can win a huge tournament. You don't necessarily need Travis Kelsey. There's a lot of randomness in the way it plays out. Now, if Mahomes has a huge season, yeah, Kelsey probably gets there, but you're going to have differently constructed rosters. There's ways to combat Kelsey rosters. And that doesn't mean that Kelsey has the spike week with Mahomes. Maybe it's Sky Moore, again, with the touchdown variance that just happens to get there in a given week. And kind of to drive this home, like not freaking out on stacking, like there's a big range of players in terms of how many you need stacked in week 17 to help your win rates. And even if you're outside that range, you're not like, totally dead. Just for example, on pure randomness, if you had no players stacked with any of your quarterbacks, opposing team skill players, or same team pass catchers, I estimated looking at the data last year that you would win a final size type field about 0.14% of the time. That's not very good, but your base win rate 0.21% of the time. For having zero correlation whatsoever, you're not like totally dead there. Now, that's not the goal. The goal is to have high expected value teams and to be have a better than expectation finals win rate. But just want to be clear, like you're not totally dead. And then even if you look at, let's say, like two players stacked with your quarterback in some fashion, whether it's the same team pass catcher, opposing skill player, that gets you at break even more or less at a 0.21% win rate. Now, the ideal range for you to be in, I found was somewhere between let's say five to eight, five to nine total stacked players with your quarterback. So if you have three quarterbacks, that's, you know, three single stacks with a ring back for week 17 and you're in that range. Maybe some of those are double stacks. If you have two quarterbacks, it's two double stacks with a bring back in week 17 to get there. Um, that gets you to six players too. You know, five is sort of the cutoff. So I have teams where I have, you know, four to six total players stacked in week 17. And again, this is specific to the huge tournaments like the DraftKings Million Maker and the Best Ball Mania 4 on Underdog, where week 17 has outsized importance. But yeah, I have teams like that. I have some teams where it works out where I have seven to nine. You know, the key to all this, again, is to be really flexible. You do probably want to hit a minimum threshold of stacking. But once you hit that minimum threshold of stacking, I would not panic and think like, oh my God, I'm absolutely drawing dead because I don't have this specific combination, which looks like is you know what you'll probably need. You need to have more imagination. This happens in DFS all the time too. It's like, how could I possibly win 
with, with this player. That'll mean this happens to this player. And we have to look at correlations as probabilities, not as absolute certainty. So I hope this uh, first kind of best ball musings podcast was somewhat helpful. We'll continue to do these over the course of the off season. So appreciate everybody for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.